Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Well, if you're watching at home, you're wondering what that was like. That's a little bit like church. That's what we've experienced tonight. I hope that it resonated with you in your homes. Uh, By the way, praise team, I hope you sing Holy Water again. That was fantastic. Wonderful, beautiful sounding song, but glorious in its truths. We do need God's grace over and over and over again. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll read the first 10 verses in just a few moments. Came across uh, an article that had a, a picture in the National Geographic, or at least an article that referenced a picture in the National Geographic of two saber-toothed cats that were locked in combat. In other words, as fossils, they were found locked in combat. One of the saber-toothed cats had clamped down on the other one, and one of its large teeth had gone through the femur bone of the other cat's leg. So the reason they were locked in combat and they are in a fossil record in that particular state is because the one cat couldn't get its tooth out of the other cat's leg. And of course, they fought and they ended up fighting themselves to the death. Neither of them could survive. The point was this. When Christians fight each other, everybody loses. The passage of Scripture that we're going to read in a few moments deals with who we're to be as the church of Jesus Christ. How we're to interact with one another based on who we are in Jesus Christ. The passage of Scripture begins with some specific applications for how we're to act toward one another. And it's all based on the previous chapter as Peter ended with this commendation or expectation for us to love each other. For us to care about each other, for us to put one another first and exist in brother love with a sincere biblical agape love. So Peter begins chapter 2 verse 1 and he writes this, so he's reflecting back on the way we're to love one another. That love is to be the way that we act as a result, so put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ." For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, or in the King James Version, it's a peculiar people, a strange people, a different people, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received God's mercy, but now you have received mercy. And notice this, verse 11, though it's not in our text, we'll pick it up next week. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Over the next few weeks, the term sojourners is going to be the key for each of our sermons. It's going to be as sojourners, this is how we're to live our lives in the world around us. The point or the title for this message is that sojourners are God's people. Listen, we may not have a permanent residence in this place, in this earth, in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, or North Wilkesboro, or, or um, Perlier, or Boomer, or wherever town you find yourself in and around Wilkesboro. That may not be your permanent residence, but you do have a permanent residence somewhere. And it's because you're God's people that that permanent residence is not here. There are three specific applications that Peter makes for us to recognize as God's people from this wonderful passage of Scripture. First, as God's people, we are to put away community-destroying behaviors. I, I cannot emphasize this enough. The text here talks about us as God's people, not about I or me as God's person. The emphasis in this passage of Scripture is not on an individual response and relationship with Jesus, although that's necessary, but the emphasis is on us as a people, the community of God's people, functioning and working together in the way that God desires us to be. And so Peter's emphasis on these behaviors... These behaviors that we're to avoid, that we're to abandon, that we're to walk away from are behaviors that reflect uh, division or, or cause division within the body of believers. Notice what he says. He says, put away all malice. That's basically ill will. Anything that we do or anything that someone does that creates difficulty, division, and controversy, we're to put it away. And by putting it away, the term there is to basically undress. It's to take it off. So in a few minutes, I'm going to take this sport coat off and I'm going to hang it back up in my closet. I'm going to take it off because I don't need it anymore. I don't need it when I go home. I don't wear it inside my house. I'm going to take it off and I'm going to put it in my closet. What Peter's telling us is that as believers, as followers of Jesus, as God's people, we're to take off malice. We're to take off ill will. There should be nothing in our behavior, our conduct, and our conversation that is ill toward another for the sake of being ill toward another. We should avoid that. We should get rid of it. He also says that we're to put away all deceit. The term there is a term that would be used for like a, a baiting a hook for a fish. I, I grew up bass fishing. I still like to bass fish. And you take a lure and you make it look like something that it's not. And you try to attract a bass to, to eat it. It's fun to catch bass that way. It's enjoyable. What Peter is saying is that's not the way we're to act around other believers. And when in our home, we have some fun and got some boys that like to have fun. Occasionally, I'll hide and jump out at them and scare them. And they'll try to hide and jump out at us and scare us. Uh, you know, that, that's fun in games. It's deceitful in that scenario. But let me tell you something. What Peter says about us as God's people is that should never be the way we behave toward one another. 
I, I shouldn't tell lies. I shouldn't try to put myself in a situation that makes me look better than the other person. I shouldn't try to deceive and bait the hook and, and get it where that other person looks worse than I do because, I, you know, I'm holding on to some kind of thing that makes me look better. If, if I can make myself look better and make somebody else look worse and, and I can come out of this smelling clean and being nice, if, if, if I'm just be a little deceptive. Folks, Peter says we're to avoid all that. One reason we're to avoid all that and one reason we do deceive is because we, we're under the impression that if we don't make someone think better of us, then we think worse of ourselves. Let me tell you something God already knows. He already knows the lies you're holding in your heart. He already knows the sinfulness that is dwelling within you. He already knows it. He already sees it. No one else can see anything that you've done that's any worse than God already knows and God already sees. So we might as well own up to it and be honest about it. And Peter says we're not to have deceit because deceit and malice destroy the community. How many times have you watched churches go through difficulties because someone couldn't tell the truth? How about this next one? Hypocrisy. The image there is the image of an actor on a stage. I'm listening to an audio book about George Whitfield, and George Whitfield liked to uh, perform plays and read plays. And it's one of the reasons he was such a great communicator as a preacher is he enjoyed that, that element of the, 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 the preaching event being active and oratory. And that, that's wonderful. But what Peter's saying here, we're not to be fake. You and I know that we, when we turn on a television program or when we turn on reality TV for that matter or a movie, it's fake. A person is playing a part. They're playing a part because they want you to believe something that's not actually true. What Peter's saying here is that that's not the way we're to be in the church. Do you get that? You're not playing a part when you walk in among the, the God's people. It's not like you should have a part that you play at home and a part that you play at work and a part that you play at church. And if you, you know, mess up your parts, you're going to get people in trouble. What Peter's saying is we're not to be hypocritical. We're to be who we are. Listen, if I'm struggling or if I'm bad, I should be struggling and bad wherever I am. Why? Because I'm forgiven wherever I am. should be able to own up to it, right? You should be able to own up to it. We shouldn't put on a, a, a face. We shouldn't try to play a role. We should set those apart because they're divisive behaviors. How about this one? Envy. That's the thing that happens when somebody else gets what you think you deserve. And, and instead of you cheering them on and celebrating them, you're holding back that little part in your heart that says, why did they get that? I'm better than they are. I deserve that more than they do. And, and then when we take that to the extreme, what, what ends up happening? We end up trying to punish them for some fault that's not theirs and flaw that's not theirs. We end up hurting ourselves and we hurt the church. Listen, that has damaged churches, it's damaged pastors, it's damaged ministries just by being envious. And then that term slander is basically saying nasty things about people that may or may not be true, but they're said in a, in, in, with the motivation of damaging. Every single one of us in this room can point to instances in the life of church experience where one or more of those characteristics has damaged it's divided and it's destroyed. And Peter says very simply and very clearly, these things are the things you're to get rid of. Listen, 
as God's people, we're to put away community-destroying behaviors. If you're guilty of any of these in this moment, confess it. The reality is we're all going to be tempted toward these kind of community-destructive behaviors at some point in our interaction with one another. And when we are tempted with it, Peter says we're to rid ourselves of it, put it away, set it apart. Instead, we're to long for the pure spiritual milk that if you grow, that by it you may grow up unto salvation, if indeed you've tasted the Lord is good. What would you long for? We're to long for what grows us in knowledge of God. The pure spiritual milk, that word spiritual here is the same word that Paul used in Romans 12, 1, that we are and to seek out the spiritual benefits of surrendering our lives over to Christ. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, that, that you may prove what is the will of God. It's the word logikos. It, it doesn't just carry with it the idea of some kind of feeling. I'm going to tell you something. If you're in the room, you know what we felt tonight singing worship to Jesus. There's a feeling associated with that. And oftentimes, we think that's what's spiritual. Because that is... You know, there's an emotional element to it, and there is a, a, a feelings element to it. And we walked out of here feeling better than we walked in. That's great. But that's not what Peter has in mind, the pure spiritual milk. He's not talking about a feeling. He's not talking about emotional experience. He's talking about the rational truth of God's Word. How do we grow? We grow through experiences, sure, but those experiences better be based on something that is not experiential or only experiential, based on something that's true, based on what God says. How do we grow? We grow as we take in God's Word. We grow as we apply God's Word. We grow as we dive into God's Word, as we memorize it, as we allow it to direct our lives. God's Word is the Word that teaches us. And by the way, it flows right out of chapter 1 in Peter's argument previously. God's Word is what leads us to salvation. God's Word is what introduces us to God who is good. And so as Christians, as followers of God, as his people, we are to avoid or put away community-destroying behaviors. As God's people, secondly, we embrace our Christ-centered identity as his community. Who are you? Who am I? Those questions are questions we ask ourselves in this particular culture. We're a culture enamored with self-help strategies and self-identification. Oftentimes, we think we are what our orientation says we are. Or we think we are what our occupation says that we are. Or if we're a little bit better than our orientation or our occupation, we sometimes think we are what our observations say that we are. I mean, we can take all these self-assessments and you can find out what type of animal you're like based on a certain type of self-assessment. Or you can find out on what spectrum you are. Are you a leader? Are you a follower? Are you an observer? Are you an intellect? And, and um, many of us have taken those over the years. Is that who we are based on our observations? We're enamored with those things. Let me say this very clearly. Our identity is not in our orientation, our occupation, or self-observations. Our identity is found in God's declarations about who we are. God gets to define us. God is the one that says who we are. And in this passage of Scripture, we should embrace the Christ-centered identity that we have. Because let me tell you something. It's a whole lot better than what your occupation says, your orientation says, or your observations say. Why is it important? Because, folks, there's coming a day when your occupation will no longer be able to define you. You're going to retire. If all you are is what you do in your job, 
then you're going to be lost when you don't have that job. If all you are is what you are in your orientation, when those desires fade, then that's going to go away. If all you are is who you are in your observations, you're going to miss your observations sometimes and have to figure out, well, was the test wrong or was that test wrong? Or was I wrong? Or was my spouse wrong? Who's wrong? What, what, what is this? I can't make sense of this. Folks, we can't get our identity internally. We can't get our identity externally. We need to get our identity heavenly from God's statement about who we are. And this is a passage of Scripture that's all about that. Who are we? Well, we are what God has made us to be. We are what God has saved us to be. We are what God has created us to be. There are several things in this passage that stand out. One, we are living stones. We're living stones. Notice verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. We're living stones. Why are we living stones? Because Jesus is the living stone. By the way, the Roman Catholics get all of this wrong about Simon Peter. They've built their entire church structure on Simon Peter as the first pope. Because of that statement Simon Peter made way back when, when asked who Jesus was, he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, on this rock, I will ground my church. Uh, and, and so what the Roman Catholics do is they say that Peter was the foundation of the church. Peter wasn't the foundation of the church. The words there are different, Petros and Petra, are two different words. And Jesus was saying, on this rock, I ground my church, Petra, not Petros, Peter. Peter means little rock, Petra means giant rock. Now, on this foundation, the statement of who Jesus is, is on which the church is founded. And what I find really interesting is Peter, whose name means rock, is discussing stones and rocks and cornerstones in this passage of Scripture. And you know how much he turns the attention to himself in this text? None. The word he uses for stones doesn't have anything to, the, to do with the word that, that he is named Petros. It doesn't have anything to do with it. He's talking about something completely different. Why? Because it's not about him individually. It is about us reflecting Jesus and being in Jesus. And we are living stones because Jesus is the living stone. Stones aren't alive. I meant to grab the little rocks that my son has put in his cup holder in our car. He collects rocks. He grabs rocks. He brings rocks home from everywhere. He finds rocks. I have yet to see a rock move that he didn't throw it. Rocks don't move. They're not alive. Yet Peter says, we're living stones. Why are we living stones? Well, because Jesus is the stone who's no longer dead. There was a stone that rolled in front of that grave when he was put in that grave. That stone moved and Jesus came out. Jesus is the living stone. We are living stones. Do you, you realize that? Now, some of us, we've heard, we've heard over the years that we're, you know, we're about as dumb as a box of rocks. You ever heard that phrase? Sometimes that may be true of us. I'm going to tell you this. We are rocks that move. We've been made alive in Jesus because Jesus is not dead. He's not a rock that is static. He's a rock that is dynamic and moving and doing all sorts of wonderful things in our world. And he's made us living stones. Why are we living stones? We're living stones because we're a spiritual house. Notice what he says. You yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house as a spiritual house. We're a spiritual house. Do you realize that God indwells us? And I love this. I want you to get this. Yes, God indwells you individually. 
But Peter's language here is not about in the indwelling of you individually. It's about the indwelling of us as a community. Us corporately. One of the reasons we're to avoid all of those community destructive behaviors is because Jesus saved us and made us living stones to build us up in a spiritual house. He wants to indwell us as the church. And when you're angry with sister so-and-so and mad at brother so-and-so and they're mad at you and we're arguing that is not an appropriate spiritual house for the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ in us. God made us living stones because He wants us to be a spiritual house. We're not just living stones in a spiritual house, but we're a chosen race. Catch this. Uh, Verse 9, you are a chosen race. It's the language that would be used of the people of Israel. God separated them. He called them out. He made them different. Uh, Get this. Daniel Dorian in his commentary put it this way. In the Old Covenant, God set His people apart from the nations... But in the new covenant, he sets us apart as we live among the nations. The emphasis in the Old Testament was God separating the people of Israel so that they would look like him and reflect him to the world. What God has done since, he's not made us our own ethnicity in the sense of drawing us out as white folks or as black folks or as Indian folks or wherever we are. He's brought us into a new race, a chosen race. He's made us his people to identify as followers of Jesus as Christians. In other words, the race that God brings into a relationship with himself, it's not about our lineage. It's not about our heritage. It's not about who our mamas and daddies were, grandparents were, where we came from or where we live. It's about being chosen by God and brought into his family. That's a glorious truth. That's one reason why our mission partners who are all over the world celebrating Jesus in Africa and in Asia and in Europe today, we're going to celebrate Jesus together because we are a chosen race together. We're also a royal priesthood. Mention this in verse 5, also mentions it in verse 9, a royal priesthood. We're priests. We have been made into image bearers. We are image bearers by creation, but we've been made into bearers of God's glory and work as a priest in our lives, but not just a priest, royal priests. Jesus did not get his priesthood from the Aaronic covenant. That's Aaron's line. The book of Hebrews references the Jesus priesthood came from Melchizedek because Jesus' line was not from the, the, the descendants of Levi, Aaron. His line was from the descendants of Judah, which is the king. Jesus is the king. And so he's the king and the priest. And what he says about us is that we are a royal priesthood. We're a part of his reign. Do you recognize this? I want you to get this. Just remember this real real quickly. You are a co-regent with God. You are a king and a queen. Next time you think less of yourself, or you wonder who you really are, or how you're really going to make it through this world, you remember that God says you're royalty. You're a king And you're a queen. But not just a king and a queen. Not in the sense of that we're going to be in charge and we're going to make all the decisions. We're a royal priesthood. Meaning that we reflect God's work in the world. Jesus as a priest stood in between God and us and brought us into right relationship with himself. Do you know what? When our praise team leads us in worship and reflects on those glorious truths, do you know what they're doing? They're teaching us scripture and they're teaching us God's truths about our lives. They're functioning as priests. 
Do you realize that when you love someone who doesn't deserve your love and you care about them and you minister to them and you, you serve them, you're functioning as God's priest in the world. You're standing in between that person and God and you're showing them love. When you forgive someone who doesn't deserve forgiveness, when you minister to someone who doesn't deserve ministry, when you speak the gospel to someone who doesn't deserve the gospel, you're functioning as a priest. You're functioning as an in-between. And that priesthood, we believe in the individual priesthood of the believers, meaning that I don't have to pray for you for your prayers to get somewhere. Again, we're not Roman Catholic. You don't need a priest. You have Jesus as a priest. I'm not a priest. I'm a preacher. I declare God's word. My prayers don't get to heaven any faster than your prayers. You know how I know? Because your Jesus is just as strong as my Jesus. He's the only Jesus that ever lived. Now, God can pray for you and you can pray for me. That's why we're priests together. That's why we pray for one another. But our prayers don't get to God faster because we go through a priest. We are priests together. And that gives us the privilege of functioning that way for other believers. I've got to move fast. We're a holy nation. Meaning we're set apart. He brought us into his family. We're God's people. Meaning he named us after himself. That sounds like Peter's talking a lot about us. But he's not, because everything he says about us is based on what Jesus has done. Catch this. We're all of these things because of what Jesus has done. We're living stones because Jesus is the true resurrection stone. We're a royal priesthood because Jesus is the kingly high priest. He is the one who has stood the test of time and has stood in between us and God and brought us into a relationship with himself. We can be stones being built up into a heavenly house, a spiritual house, Because Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter references the book of Isaiah twice and the book of Psalms once when he quotes these passages of Scripture that says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you to believe. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Let me tell you, the reason we can be stones is because Jesus is the primary stone. The cornerstone was that stone in the building that had to be there before every other stone functioned and could work correctly. It's not just the cornerstone as in the building is built upon it. It's the capstone. It's the primary stone. It's the only stone that really matters. Here's the point. Without Jesus, we're not stones. We're just a bunch of dumb rocks. We don't have any purpose. We don't have any function. We don't have any ability in the world. But with Jesus, when he makes us alive, guess what? You and I have a function and a responsibility and a privilege. And anyone who believes in Jesus, the cornerstone, the the text says, will not be put to shame. Tell you, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of God's people, you're part of his family, uh, you have not misplaced your trust. Your trust in Jesus is worthwhile. It's wonderful because it brings you in his family, makes you a holy, makes you a part of his nation. It makes you a part of his race. It makes you a part of his priesthood. It makes you a part of his house. I mean, that's the glory of it. Jesus has done what he's done so that he can bring us into a relationship with himself. We're spiritual sacrifices because Jesus offered himself once and for all as the sacrifice. We're a chosen race because Jesus is God's son who intervenes on our behalf and brings us, adopts us into his family. Do you realize many of us, if we do ancestry research, we're going to have all kinds of different uh, nationalities and ethnicities in our backgrounds? That may make us unique or that may make us just blended. You know what God's done? He said, I don't care whether your background gives you privilege 
And I don't care whether your parents give you privilege. I don't care whether you have an inheritance from your mom and daddy. I'm adopting you into my family. I'm going to give you a name that's going to last forever. I'm going to give you a home that's never going to go away. I'm going to give you an inheritance that's my inheritance and I own it all. That's what God's done. He's brought us in. He's taken our place so that we can know him and be in relationship with him. We're a holy people. The picture there of holy people is ethnos. It's used of Gentiles in the New Testament. It's used of multitudes in the New Testament. We are a holy people, a holy ethnicity, a holy ethnos. What does that mean? It means that not all of us that are a part of God's house look like us. And to that, we ought to say amen. Not all of us that are part of God's house sing like us or talk like us or speak our language because God cares for people all over the world and he wants to draw them to himself and he wants us to declare his glory so that they'll receive him. We're God's people because Jesus made, him, made us his. When you walk out of here tonight, I want you to walk out of here remembering who you are. You are God's people. We are God's people. Peter does something else here. He, he distinguishes all human history on the part that Jesus played. He said, Jesus is the cornerstone. We're either going to be built up into his house or he's going to be the stone on which we stumble. If you're watching, if you're in the room, and you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone to be your Savior, the only way for you to have eternal life, the only way for you to be forgiven, the only way for you to be redeemed, the only way for you to be cleansed and have peace, the only way for you to have hope and eternity, is if you'll put your trust in Jesus alone. He's either going to be the one that builds you up, that rescues you, that saves you, Or he's going to be the stone on which you stumble and trip and fall and are crushed throughout human history. There's really no other option. If you're watching, if you're listening, I would beg of you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And and folks, here's why. As God's people, thirdly, we proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Notice this. We are a holy nation of people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people. Once we were separated, we were individual. We lived in Wilkesboro, North Wilkesboro. We had enemies. We had people we worked against. We had people we fought against. We had people that didn't like us. We had people across the river that we didn't get along with. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. We are a people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Folks, we've been changed. So what do we do when we've been changed? We proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into his wonderful, glorious light. We proclaim his excellencies. We try unsuccessfully sometimes here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church to be excellent in what we do. Our aim and our motivation in our worship services, as musicians, as ministers, as a staff, as preachers, is to be excellent. Why? Because we recognize that if we're not excellent, sometimes we distract. The lack of excellency functions as a distortion at times to people being able to hear what God has said. Now, we're, we're imperfect in that. We are, we are gloriously imperfect in that. We recognize that, but that's what we strive to do. But I'm going to tell you something. Jesus is purely, perfectly, absolutely, completely, totally excellent. He's never made a mistake. He's never flawed. There's nothing about him that's wrong or that's off. And I can tell you about Jesus all day long, every day, because he's worthy of me telling you about Jesus all day long, every day. 
We proclaim the excellencies of Jesus when we worship. Do you realize that? You realize one of the reasons why church is so important and the gathered church is important. One of the reasons why we came back and gathered in the room is about as early as we could is because the gathered church is important. Why? Because we need to hear one another singing and saying to one another who Christ is. Proclaiming the excellencies of Christ happens in worship. We've done so tonight. We'll, we, you that are watching on Sunday morning, as you've heard this recorded service, you've heard the excellencies of Jesus declared in worship and in song. And that's important and that needs to happen. Also needs to happen in our witness. We need to tell people about the excellencies of Jesus, how good Jesus is, how wonderful Jesus is. Say, Pastor, I don't know what to say. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Because Jesus brought you out of darkness and into light. I was, uh, had a class this week with our Freeland students at Freeland Baptist Bible College, and we were talking about the doctrine, doctrines of salvation, some of the elements of salvation, and we were discussing some of the deep details of Scripture and how God saves us through election and regeneration and how God reaches in our midst and, and brings us up to himself. And, and some of those things are mysterious. Some of those things are beyond us. You know what it really boils down to, though? It boils down to God is a great and glorious and a grand Savior and a grand God. Because here's what he's done. He looked down through human history and he saw you when you were blinded by spiritual darkness. When you were basking in unbelief. When you were wallowing in your wickedness. When you were acting like those people that hadn't put off hypocrisy and slander and all of those unrighteous things early on in chapter 2. He saw you in that place. He saw you in that situation. He saw you in that circumstance. You know what he did? He pursued you. He came after you. He sent his Holy Spirit after your heart. And he reached into your heart and he spoke truth to you through a preacher or through a song or through a vacation Bible school worker or through a Sunday school teacher or through a parent. He spoke truth to you and he drew you to himself and he opened your eyes and he let you see Jesus and his glory and his forgiveness and his wonder and his grandeur and he brought you in a relationship with himself. Folks, don't tell me you don't have something excellent to say about Jesus. If all you say about Jesus is what Jesus did for you, that is is excellent and glorious. Folks, as God's people, we have the privilege of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. You need to trust Him as Savior. Why don't you come do that tonight? If you're watching us, if you need to trust Jesus as Savior, if you haven't received Him as Lord, don't go another minute without trusting Him to be your Lord and Savior. Reach out to us. Let us know. Ask us how we can help. Here's how we're going to close the service. We're going to sing about Jesus' mercy and proclaim his excellencies to one another. Stand with me, if you will. Lord God, we come to you in this moment. We realize we're flawed. We're not excellent. We're not perfect. We miss the mark. Too often, Lord, we haven't rid ourselves of those behaviors that divide and distort. Lord God, you're better than us. You're greater than us. You're more glorious than our sin. Your grace extends beyond our unrighteousness. Your mercy reaches past our wickedness. Lord, aren't we so happy for that, glad for that. Lord God, thank you for bringing us into your family, adopting us into your home, making us into your spiritual house. And Lord God, may we be encouraged, may we be motivated, may we be inspired, Lord, to set aside, to, to put off this community-destroying behaviors. May we be encouraged by our identity in Christ. 
And Lord God, may we be motivated to declare and to praise and to proclaim your excellent uh, glories and your graces and how worthy you are. Hear us now and rejoice in our worship of you this night, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.